Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 509 of the podcast and it is Friday the 25th of September 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to David Gochran and I know you will love listening to his Irish accent as well as his many marketing tips. It feels like the pair of us have been around in the industry a very long time (laughs) and we first met in person, I think it must have been 2012 London Book Fair and we've been together at various events over the years and um, we talk about how self-publishing has changed, how we all start from zero, especially when we begin another pen name, which both uh, David and I have done. And Dave has done this year to split out his fiction from his non-fiction, which I did back in 2012 and never regretted. He gives some thoughts on the algorithms and the importance of clean data. And we get into book bar ads, which is uh, brilliant. I found book bar ads, the pay-per-click ads to be fantastic and why testing is important and how to do it and how it can make all the difference. So lots of great tips coming up from Dave. In publishing news, the new publishing standard, which is a fantastic blog, highly recommend it, thenewpublishingstandard.com, reports on global stories, reports this week that Audible has launched an unlimited audiobook uh, subscription service in Spain, going up against Storytel, which has been in that market for a number of years now. And uh, Storytel is an unlimited service. There are lots of unlimited audio and ebook services, of course. Not all of them require you to be exclusive. So I don't have a problem with subscription. I'll come to this in a minute. But basically, uh, the new publishing standard um, sort of says the dam has been breached, as in now Audible's doing it in other markets. How long will it be before English language services for Audible are next? And Dan Holloway uh, picks this up on the Alliance of Independent Authors blog and says, quote, I've been warning indies for many months to prepare for the Spotification, so spotify of audiobooks and the potential devastating effects on income, the window to make those preparations feels like it might be closing fast. Now, I think this is hyperbole. I love Dan. He is a friend of mine and uh, his reporting is uh, great. But I don't think devastating effects on income is realistic because it assumes that you are making pretty much all your money from exclusive audiobooks on Audible. And I think this is the minority of authors, especially those listening to this show. (laughs) So if you do make a lot of your money from Audible only, then I would say be prepared for some big changes. For the rest of us, I think uh, Audible and audiobooks are just one of our multiple streams of income. And for me, audio gets wider and wider and wider all the time as per the discussion um, with Erin and the Wide for the Win uh, group and the wonderful Findaway. So yeah, I'm not too worried about this, but let's talk about subscription in a bigger way because I know a lot of authors are having issues. And as I mentioned, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, Spotify are going to move into audiobooks. And this does have ramifications. I'm certainly not denying that subscription models have ramifications and potential impact on our income. But it is inevitable because customers want it and it's great value. So I want you to like stop thinking like a creator for a moment, think about a consumer. You are a consumer. How has your own behaviour changed around subscription in the last, let's say, five years? And how many subscription and or streaming services do you use right now? So in our house, just uh, and it's just Jonathan and I in our house, we have Amazon Prime for free shipping and TV. We have Netflix for TV and we also pay for our UK TV licence, where so we get the BBC and stuff like that. We also have Spotify. Both of us have Spotify. Uh, Jonathan used to have Apple Music, but he moved on to Spotify. And we both listen to music and podcasts. And we both use Audible for audiobooks. Um, it was sort of the first subscription service available. But if 
things that I want become available on an unlimited subscription service, it's possible that I will move (laughs) because I don't often listen to them again. We also have, oh, I do listen to some non-fiction again. So yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. Anyway, those are some. We also have, as consumers, a wine club subscription for Naked Wines, which supports independent vineyards. If you are, I don't, I don't know which territories they support, but Naked Wines in the UK certainly um, supports independent vineyards, which I love. We also have a grocery delivery service subscription with a cardo. And I also pay subscriptions for various traditional media, including The Guardian, The FT, The Financial Times, The Telegraph, Money Week and Wired magazine. So I subscribe to quite a lot of things. That's just my consumption, let alone the various subscription services we have for the author business. The reality is we all use subscription. And if you try and review the number of subscriptions you have, then, um, yeah, you might find it's more than you think. (laughs) So the sheer number of these services with many unlimited options is expanding for both ebooks and audiobooks, as well as the rest of your life. Authors are certainly right to be concerned. It will impact author income over time. Now, there is a very interesting podcast episode on the Freakonomics podcast with the founder and CEO of Spotify, Daniel Ek, entitled How Spotify Saved the Music Industry but not necessarily musicians. And they talk about the impact on creators. And he does acknowledge the issue that the biggest artists just get bigger with these platforms. But also he says, and this is what gives me kind of hope, we can develop tools that enable artists to, de- to promote their music more efficiently. Oh no, he says, can we develop tools that enable artists to promote their music more efficiently just by themselves on the platform? That could be in the form of being able to talk to their existing superfans. It could be in the form of better promotional tools. So that was broadcast last year in 2019. So I think there will be more options available for creators over time as the ecosystem develops, as they are doing for podcasters, uh, is really expanding the opportunity So yes, it will impact author income. And my thoughts on this are, (laughs) uh, you know, yeah, I can't help myself being an optimist. I literally cannot help myself. There are some days, I mean, I, I have to admit, I've been a bit of doom scrolling again this week as we've had all kinds of things going on in the UK. And I know, um, yeah, there's lots of stuff, right? So you end up doom scrolling a bit and then I get a bit miserable and I'm like, ooh. And then I realise life is still really good and there's lots of great things in the world and lots of exciting stuff going on. And I try and change my mindset and focus on the positives or I just go for a really long walk, (laughs) which I'll talk about in a minute. Anyway, my thoughts on subscriptions are... 1,000 true fans have never been more important. Go listen to me and Orna Ross on the Ask Ally podcast, A-L-L-I podcast, talking about this. And we talk about why it's so important, what are some ways to build 1,000 true fans. Very importantly, we need to educate our fans on the benefits of buying directly from us and how it supports our creativity. I'm selling audiobooks direct almost every day, as well as ebooks several times a day. Um, and of course, you can go to payhip.com dot com forward slash the creative pen and you will find that you can buy from me directly and I get the majority of the money and uh, that is fantastic. So if we all educate our fans on buying direct, we can slowly change reader behaviour and or enough reader behaviour that we can change things and make a living from a reduced number of people. Think about the idea of those concentric circles. Now there's the bigger concentric circle right out there in the you know, furthest reaches where all our stuff is available on all the stores. And then there are some who progress kind of closer to us until they support us directly. Um, So that's the first one. The second one is use these services to attract your true fans. So as a, you know, I fully embrace the idea of Spotify doing audiobooks because their discovery algorithm is so good. I'm using their search now to find new podcast episodes all the time. In fact, just today, I downloaded a whole load of new podcast episodes from different shows based on searching on keywords. And I will likely discover audiobooks that way once they get into it because their search. So if I type in, um, for example, uh, self-publishing, you're going to get 
songs. <laughs> You're going to get songs, artists, albums, podcasts, podcast episodes, and presumably in the future you'll get like audiobooks, audiobook chapters, that type of thing. So you'll be able to find them. Or that the Audible search and discovery is appalling. Uh, I haven't used some of the other platforms, but this type of search mechanism to me is critical for discovery. It's how you likely found me originally was some kind of search on the internet, maybe on Google, maybe on whatever you found me eventually. And so for me, this kind of way of reaching people is important. We have to be on these platforms and then we attract people through these sort of concentric circles down to where we are, uh, where they can support us more directly. So yes, be on all the subscription services, but also be in the wide option. So you are not exclusive to any platform and you can reach people all over the place. And, you know, maybe you have some of your catalogue on some of these services and some you sell direct. So a kind of hybrid model. So I've thought about this, um, for example, you know, sell individual books on the platform, but have the box set as a great deal only available on my own platform or something like Authors Direct. So that could be uh, an idea. So a kind of hybrid model where people can get the best deal if they come to you directly is an option. Also, remember that some formats cannot be made into a subscription model. So high quality print products, special editions like the Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter that I talked about that made like $7 million. It was amazing. That's not that's not an exaggeration. He really did, which is brilliant. Large print editions. As I mentioned before, my mum, Penny Appleton, uh, is doing really well with large print romance. And oh, because she does senior romance. Actually, I should mention uh, Penny has a new book coming soon, uh, another senior romance. So oh, I'll talk about that once, the, once it's available. Uh, so other premium things for streams of income. So once the world gets moving again, once we're all allowed to do things. I'm actually, I am intending to do author events in Bath. For example, a Frankenstein-inspired dark writing weekend or something like that. And if you didn't know, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein here in Bath. And you can go listen to my personal episode on Bath in my books and travel podcast if you want to know more about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and what happens here in Bath, which is wonderful. And I will be doing those weekends. Uh, you know, I'd like to do more of that kind of thing. And they'll be anyway. I'm, I'm, I've got lots of ideas about it, but that will be something where people who are interested in writing, interested in Bath, and want to support me, and interested in my take on things, will come. And uh, that would be a premium thing that you cannot get on subscription. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, my answer to this is, as ever, do not put all your income baskets. <laughs> Do not put all your income eggs into one basket. Subscription models may well erode author income, so make sure it's coming in from different sources. And that is no different to what I've been harping on about for like a decade. <laughs> so the only constant is change, creatives. But you and I, we can surf the change and not drown in it. So yeah, there you go. Okay, on my personal update, I have two more scenes left to write for Tree of Life first draft. I stopped yesterday and I did a reverse outline because I knew I was almost there. I was like, what else does this need? So I did a reverse outline, which is basically a few lines per chapter, sort of saying this is what happens and then which questions I'm opening with each chapter and then where I close them again. So I kind of keep track of all that. Also, checking the plot makes sense because I did not write this in order. And these two scenes are not the end scenes. <laughs> I actually wrote the end a couple of weeks ago now. Um, and I actually only discovered the what was in the Garden of Eden once I wrote that scene, <laughs> which is very cool. The book has not turned out as I expected. And this is, I think this is why in the end, I love the discovery writing process. I've definitely incorporated some aspects of outlining. Like I said, I just did a reverse outline, but I did it at when I hit like over 50,000 words. <laughs> so yeah, I next week, once I finish the extra scenes, I will be um, doing my self edit. So I print out the whole book and I handwrite my notes 
to be honest, I'm really happy with this draft. I think it's really pretty clean and it is book 11 in my Arcane series. So it shouldn't really be a significant edit. I do know how to write a novel these days. <laughs> uh, so it will just be, you know, minor line edit type stuff and sentence structures and things like that. I'm pretty happy with the plot and, and all of that. And then it's often my editor who is kind of like a first reader for me. And Jen, she's wonderful. She's been my first reader for years now and just really value her opinion so it's not it's more like a story edit but um it's anyway it's just it's not a line by line edit I kind of do that myself and then I have a proofreader once I make my changes so anyway that is coming out uh, that will be out first week of December so I am finishing it quite early so I can get the print stuff done and everything so basically I'm almost there other good news, Map of Shadows is finished in audiobook. My narrator, Charlie Sanderson, is brilliant. I'm super happy with it and uh, very happy with using Findaway Voices. That is now progressing through the various systems. And I'm basically done, I think, with ACX because I published a German audiobook there in March and it's still not there. It's been stuck in their QA system since May. We've had a tiny little error that they rejected it on. Uh, first submitted in March, then resubmitted in May and it's still not live and they're basically, yeah, I don't know what is happening. <laughs> I know a lot of authors having problems at the moment with um, the speed of getting things through ACX, but I'm like, this is... This is crazy. So I'm pretty much now only working with Findaway as much as possible or licensing um, books as well and getting out of my exclusive deals and going wide with audio. So, uh, yeah, we'll have the other two books done hopefully before Christmas. And also I will have the trilogy uh, done at some point. I mean, the box set. I'll do that next year sometime, probably about six months after it's all done. I'll, I'll do some kind of box set. Also, what else personally? I said I like doing long walks. It makes me feel better um, tomorrow. So by the time you listen to this, I will have done the walk. I'm doing tomorrow the Chilton 50k, 50 kilometres ultra marathon, walking it. You know, I walk these ultras and uh, at the moment it has not been cancelled. So fingers crossed it goes ahead. We are all COVID secure. Lots of all the things we have to do but I'm pretty excited I mean it is outside it's outside and once you get walking it's all spread out and stuff so I'm and they've they've done all the things they're meant to do and so I'm I'm not worried about it I am very excited to be getting out of the house and doing something different and it looks like the weather will be lovely a sort of crisp sunny autumn day and uh, you can check out the pictures on Instagram at JF Penn author if you're interested in the lovely Chilton area of the UK and yeah I was reflecting on why I want to do the 50 because you can do 25k and of course if I'm struggling or whatever then I'll just stop at 25 um, 25 is what I normally do on a weekend so uh, on a Sunday for example so 25 is not an issue uh, the 50 definitely is a push it's uh, to me about 35 is where I'm like usually 35 I'm like yeah I'm, I'm done <laughs> but so 50 is definitely a push um, but I want to push my comfort zone I talked this about this um a while back, I also had planned to do the 100 in July, which got cancelled. This is the first event that has not been cancelled. <laughs> so I really hope I do it. Um, I also find that walking these longer distances just kicks me into more of a sane mindset around what's important and puts me back in my body. So often when we're doom scrolling, for example, you spend too much time on your phone, you consume too much news, you know, maybe you go out for a walk, or you go out in nature, but you're not out long enough to forget about things. Whereas if you walk 50 kilometers, it will probably take me between, with breaks, it's going to take between 11 and 12 hours, probably. By the time you've done that, all you want to do is go to sleep. <laughs> So it's a very good way to remove yourself from the stresses of the world. I find going for a longer walk. And of course, I talked about this with Holly Wharton on Books and Travel podcast. We talk about long distance walking. So you can get loads of tips on that. Go to Books and Travel podcast on your app and you'll see, as I record this, the last episode is Holly Wharton, long distance walking. And we both talk about our experiences. 
So useful stuff this week. If you're just starting out with self-publishing and you want to know the basics, or if you've self-published a few books and it's not gone very well and you want to revisit everything you should have in place, then check out Mark Dawson's 101 self-publishing course, which is open this week for a limited time. It does open up a couple of times per year and it's open right now as I record this. You can use my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash 101. That's the numerals 101, thecreativepen.com forward slash 101. And I really support Mark's course. I actually withdrew my own self-publishing course after Mark released his because it is so comprehensive and high quality. And I'm a very happy affiliate of his 101 course and his ad courses. And Mark is also doing a webinar this week, next week, whenever you're listening to this, on how to get your first or your next 10 book reviews. It is a great webinar. You can register for the live event or get the replay at thecreativepen.com forward slash oct6 oc T6 because it's on the 6th of October. <laughs> so uh, yeah, links in the show notes as ever, but definitely check that out uh, if you want to revisit your self-publishing 101. Also, if you're interested in podcasting, you'll know that I had a great time at Podcast Movement in Orlando in 2019, as I talked about in episode 447 on Podcasting Goes Mainstream, How Can Authors Benefit? Lessons Learned from Podcast Movement 2019. Now, I am going to be attending the conference online this year. And uh, if you want to, and it's very good conference, a lot of very, very good podcasters and uh, you'll learn a lot. I'm quite excited about it. You can get 50. And in fact, I'm more excited because I don't have to go to Orlando, which I have to say, I love you, America, but Orlando is not my favorite place. (laughs) You can get $50 off if you use my code, thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast movement all one word, links in the show notes. I am not an affiliate of the event, as in I won't get any kickback from that, but I will go into a prize draw to get some cool audio tech. So if you'd like to use my link, (laughs) that would be awesome. Thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast movement. Or of course, just go to podcastmovement.com if you don't want to use my link. Links in the show notes. Right. Thanks for all your tweets and emails and comments this week. Thanks to SK with the pictures from Grand Mesa, Colorado. The aspens are starting to change colour. The meadow grass is shifting to brown. Where there were millions, now the flowers are few and far between as the forest floor shifts toward winter. And I always love to see your pictures from around the world. Uh, Robin Lyons sent a picture of trimming basil for pesto while listening to the show. Brilliant picture of lots of bright green. Green, uh, with the podcast app playing next to it, which is awesome. Thank you, Robin. Sarah Madison says uh, on the episode with Derek last week, what a brilliant episode. Thank you. The garden parasol idea was forehead smackingly brilliant as my kitchen is an acoustic nightmare. Thanks for, for the reminder to treat this as an investment. The editing is costly, so I've been dragging my feet. And uh, I will recommend, I mean, obviously, if you didn't listen to last week's show on audio, you can go and listen to that to get all Derek's tips. But also, I highly recommend M.L. Buckman's book on um, narrating and producing your own audiobook. So in my book, Audio for Authors, I do not include technical stuff on how to do editing because, uh, you know, it, it's too, there are so many options. But Matt has a way to do it yourself so that, so that you can actually save those costs if you want to do some learning. So ML Buckman, uh, the audio, if you go narrating and producing your own audiobook, something like that. Sarah Jane Weldon says on YouTube, the marketing tips for audiobooks were super useful. I have audiobooks, but I never think about promoting them. Time to add that to my to-do list. Fantastic. And then I also wanted to thank Cora L. Stechik. I think that's how you say it, Cora, um, who's an awesome Twitter handle at Salted Coramel. <laughs> brilliant says i was listening to your september 7th podcast on ambition and adventure while on a walk you mentioned graveyard pics i was in a graveyard and so she sent some pictures uh but what was crazy is she sent one with a future date on it i have never seen this it is a predictive tombstone with the words time traveler on it and the years 1996 to 2064 which is very very cool it's it's so cool that it makes it makes me wonder whether or not somebody dead is actually 
actually in it, like under it, obviously, (laughs) or whether they have bought this in advance. Now, if you buy your tombstone in advance, why would you put a date on it? I mean, surely you're jinxing this in some way if you put a date on it. But just fascinating. So thank you, Cora. I really loved that. That was awesome. And I literally have never seen that. So now all you um, graveyard lovers like me, you taffophiles, everyone's going to be watching out for predictive tombstones. (laughs) Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark, who I use to make sure my print books in multiple formats, paperback, large print and hardback are wide and available in bookstores, universities, online stores and thousands of retailers around the world. And uh, the pandemic has been very good to Ingram as of course many publishers are moving to print on demand and investing and Ingram are investing in more infrastructure so things are going to get even better. So why use Ingram Spark? Many authors think, oh, I'll just use KDP Print. Well, the biggest reason is because Amazon is not the only place that people buy print books. (laughs) Shock horror, I know. (laughs) Bookstores, libraries, universities, schools, uh, all these places buy from catalogues and expect a discount as well as bulk deals. And Ingram Spark puts you in those catalogues, making your book available to 40,000 outlets worldwide. I've also seen an increasing number of people promoting bookshop.org during lockdown and that allows people to support independent bookstores and uh, our books are on that shop as well. Mine's certainly there, I went to check before this uh, and that is through Ingram. There's no way my books would be on there without Ingram and it is coming to the UK soon. Also you can get a good affiliate on Bookshop. So that's definitely interesting for indies and getting your books on there through Ingram is great. So if you're only on KDP Print, you're missing out on wide print distribution, which I love. So how I do it is I publish on KDP Print for Amazon and then Ingram Spark for everywhere else. My print sales have continued to expand with my books appearing in bookstores at literary festivals because they can't order your books unless they're, they have a discount because they're booksellers and various countries all over the world and libraries. And, you know, many of you have sent me pictures from all over the place. So uh, my books are only my print books are only available globally because of using Ingram Spark. They have an incredibly useful blog and a podcast called Go Publish Yourself, which is just brilliant. They also have a sense of humour. They have great articles on things like how to self-publish a photo book, which I know many of you are interested in, and also hardbacks are something you can do through Ingram. You can also do cool things like personalise a print run. So if you want to write a note to a book group or a school, for example, you could dedicate that that run to a school group or a reading group or whatever. You can even now use their free ISBNs and they have free online courses, a friendly help team. Basically, you just have, you like, I literally don't know why people don't do this. <laughs> so it's your content. Do more with it with Ingram Spark. Just go over to ingramspark.com to check it out. Uh, and as you know, I only partner with companies that I use and personally recommend. And uh, I'm just very happy with Ingram, as you can tell. <laughs> So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. And uh, I appreciate that many people need to cut back in these difficult times. And I really appreciate uh, everyone who is continuing to support the show and spreading the word about the podcast. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week, including Kevin Partner, Scott Williams, Joe Robinson, Stacey Howland and Kirsten Lillis. If you would like to support the show with a couple of dollars a month, you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio when you can ask your personal questions and I will answer them. And uh, you can do this for just a couple of dollars. You'll also get a percentage off my courses. And that percentage is usually 10% and sometimes more than 10%. And I do other patron specific stuff as well. So you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right. Let's get into the interview. David Gochran is the author of Historical Adventures and Nonfiction Books for Authors. He's also an award-winning blogger and campaigner for indie authors against scammers and bad practices in the publishing industry. Welcome back, Dave. 
Thank you very much for having me, Joanna. Good to be back. Oh, it is. It's good to talk. And you and I have been around for way too long now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the last time I saw you was at a conference in, in Florida, was it? Yes, in person, I think I've I had mean. too much gin. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up. I thought you were fine, by the way. Those wanted posters were just over the top, I thought. Oh, anyway, now it will be a while till we're traveling again. But um, <laughs> you, so I want to start with Let's Get Digital because you're now on the fourth edition of Let's Get Digital. And I feel the same way, like I'm out of, you know, I just don't even know how many editions we end up doing with this type of thing. But uh, I want to start with what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen over the time we've known each other, which is a decade really now in the indie space? Yeah, I think when I released that first edition, it was way back in 2011. And I don't know if you've felt this change yourself as well. But one thing I've definitely noticed is that you certainly need to convince people about the merits of self-publishing a lot less. I think over half the original first edition way back then was a big argument on why people should take self-publishing seriously, why it wasn't a big scam, why it wouldn't damage their career and all that kind of stuff, which I think most people accept as a given these days. I don't need any of that stuff in the book anymore. So I I can focus much more. And people actually want much more focus on just the practical steps and really nailing those down. I think some of the things we probably got away with in terms of advice in 2011 would just not fly in 2020. Like I I, I actually, one day I should really open the marketing section of, you know, what of the 2011 edition, just to see what advice we're giving out. It's probably something like try and find people online who like your books. (laughs) It's gotten a touch more complicated since then. But yeah, so I just, I, instead of talking about all these other things and these industry things, I just focused on the 10 steps to successful self-publishing and just really drilled down and gave a lot more detailed information about the kind of things that people need to know. Because it's not just about, you know, having a, a cover which looks good or ha- having one designed by a professional. You also need to know how, what information to give your designer so that your branding is on point. And I think the bar has been raised in terms of what you can get away with as an author and publisher in terms of the level of presentation and packaging, how well you are targeting your reader, even with that packaging and presentation. It makes me, because I was thinking about this the other day as well, I think one of the big changes in 2011, like you really could do it with any kind of book, with any kind of cover and put the book for free. You People would find it. And Do you think that at this point, as we talk in 2020, can you be a successful or sell books as a self-published author if you are not doing everything professional? And that implies investment of money. So can you self-publish for free and have it work anymore? I think when it comes to anything in life, you have to pay with either time or money. Yeah, and there's no getting around that. Um, I think you can do it to a reasonably professional standard on a limited budget, but then you're going to have to do things like instead of spending three or $400 on a custom cover, you're going to have to, you can get that down to $50 or so, but then you'll have to spend quite a bit of time going through thousands of covers on the pre-made site. So you really have to invest one way or the other, whether you've got more money or you've got more time. But there's no way you can just skate by totally free, I think. And not when you want to put out a professional project, which I think is really important today. And you actually have a new free course that I think is fantastic called Starting From Zero. And we will get into some more uh, advanced stuff in a bit. But with this Starting From Zero, many authors are overwhelmed when they start from zero coming into the self-publishing space. Like I had someone email me the other day and she said, uh, I listened to one of your interviews and I just, I didn't understand the language or PPC ads even that people, pay-per-click ads, things that people know in certain areas don't necessarily know as authors or bookbub or the things that we talk about, the language, KDP, we use this these words and these acronyms and people don't know. So if people are starting from zero and they're feeling overwhelmed, what are some of these basic basic things that they should start with? One of the things that I tried to center the course around is a question I think maybe that authors, when they're starting out on this path, don't ask themselves enough. Um, And I think even experienced authors often don't ask them, what kind of book you're writing? Who are you writing it for? And once you start to get your head around those kind of questions, like where should it be shelved on Amazon? What do the other books look like that are selling very well? Because that's a pretty good sign that readers are responding to them if they're selling well. And then when you start to look at things like that, then you realize you're writing, you're writing urban fantasy. And then you see that blurbs are written in a certain style. Even titles have a certain style. The cover will have a certain style. And then you can start to zero in on this stuff without needing a PhD in branding or whatever. You just need to make your book look 
like it fits in the charts for your particular niche. First, you've got to find your niche. And I, I talk about that a bit in the course um, because I think you, a lot of people think they're writing something so totally original that they're not quite sure where it would fit on Amazon. But really, there's 13 or 14,000 categories on Amazon now. So you should be able to find somewhere that's even a, somewhat of a good fit for your work. And once you do that, everything flows from there. Once you know where you should be shelved in the bookshop, everything flows from there. Because you start to see, this is your target audience, the chart for that category. Because every one of those categories on Amazon, remember, has its own top 100 chart for free books, for paid books, for hot new releases. So even just browsing those charts, you start to learn a lot about how your book should be packaged, what your reader responds to, and, and how you should tweak your own presentation so that they respond to it. And I think this is a very important first step that a lot of us need to spend more time on before we start throwing money on ads or any kind of marketing. We need to get that stuff right because if you start spending money sending lots of people to your books page on Amazon or Google or wherever, and it's not a package they're going to respond to, that's not going to work for you. So this really is step one, I think, when you are starting from zero. And I also get many people, they probably email you about this too, which is, I don't want to do all of that stuff. I want someone else to do it for me. And what I tend to say now is go find a publisher. Yeah, yeah, I must, I'm totally stealing that. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, like I, the emails, like dealing with author emails, especially those at more at the beginning stage of their career can be, it can be entertaining, it can be frustrating, it can be illuminating though as well. Interesting to see the challenges that they are wrestling with and how those have changed over time. Like this whole course basically came from me constantly getting emailed by people saying, how do you start from zero? Like it's all very well for you is often the mm. subtext, whether they actually articulate that or not. So the first thing you, you have to try and communicate to people is that everybody starts from zero. Unless you're talking about one of the Kardashian clan who just gets a, a, a book deal for a ghost-written science fiction novel or something like that. <laughs> for most mere mortals, everyone is starting from zero. We don't spring forth from the womb with 10,000 people on our mailing list and an expertise in Facebook ads. So you just need to break it down step by step, learn to prioritize, and, and don't be in such a rush. I think people are in such a rush to get to expert level with Amazon ads in, in their first three months of publishing when there's other stuff they really need to focus on first and to make sure they're still reserving a lot of their free time to work on their craft and produce new books and all that really basic stuff that we all have to do all the time. And I would also say that many of us, I'm definitely in this category, I write really cross-genre books that don't fit neatly anywhere can fit in lots of different places which means they don't neatly fit in one place mm -hmm. and that kind of means you can start from zero again so I wrote my first three books and three years after I first put them out I retitled them recovered them rebranded them and I'm just doing it again with another one of my series what were my London books are now going to be the Brooke and Daniel psychological thrillers because I just it felt like I was in the wrong place. And at, at once you get a whole load of reviews, it actually helps you figure out where you are. And I think this is one issue, I say issue, it's difficult language to use, but if you are traditionally published or if you get um, an agent who understands niche, then this can be the help with the direction you get. And it's very obvious if you are writing to market as such and this is this type of book. But if you're cross genre, what are your thoughts on how to do it? Do you just put it in one genre for a bit and then move it all somewhere else? Or what, what do you recommend? Yeah, I think you need that kind of feedback from the market before you can really know. I think even someone like an agent who is particularly skilled at, at, at just having an instinctive understanding of niches, I think even then they're not, they can't say for sure that you would be better if you presented your book this way maybe more or put yourself on this shelf instead. Sometimes you've just got to try things. And, and that is the beauty of being a self-publisher over traditionally published because we are mostly selling an ebook. We are the captains of our ship. We can make all these decisions without going to a committee, without them having to draw up a budget to reprint all these books or all these complicated things that would be part of the conversation if you were traditionally published. But when you're self-published, you can just decide overnight, okay, I'm going to republish these books under another name. I'm going to recover that book. I'm going to make that book perma-free. And you can do it. And don't be afraid of making mistakes. Like uh, I, I make mistakes all the time. And they are, without getting too Silicon Valley about this, they are good learning opportunities a lot of the time. Most of the most important lessons that I've learned have come from me trying something and screwing up. But that's okay because we, we can change direction very quickly. If we try something and it's not working, it's very easy for us to pivot.
Mm. And talking of different names, you have actually split your fiction and non-fiction books using David M. Gochram for your historical fiction. And I did this back in 2012. I, I did the first three novels under Joanna Penn and then I went to J.F. Penn. But many authors still use the same name. And there's a lot of discussion on this in the in the sort of industry. Some people swear that you should have one name and other people with the algorithms, uh, the uh, say two names. And so clearly you've come down on one side, but why this change and why is it important? I've been meaning to do it for a few years actually. And I think it was it was a release a few years ago when I all my also bots got messed up with with your box actually. Uh, now that I have you on the line, I was releasing a historical novel, and I think a bunch of your books popped into my also bots, and I realized like I was having a problem in keeping. I actually wanted to keep my nonfiction audience away from my fiction, so I wanted to build instead of what I used to do at the start was the totally wrong thing to do was to try and cross pollinate these audiences that have no natural crossover whatsoever. And the danger in that, even if I'm successful in convincing people who read my nonfiction to try my fiction or vice versa, even if I'm successful in doing that, I'm giving Amazon a very muddled picture of who my reader is. And then they don't know who to recommend my books to. So I was getting to the point, because my nonfiction audience grew faster than my fiction audience, every time I launched a historical novel, Amazon would start recommending it to people who wanted to learn how to self-publish, not people who were into historical novels. So that was creating a big problem for me. And I just... I knew a few years ago that I had to do this. I've just been punting the decision for quite a while. And eventually I just grasped the nettle in January and decided to republish everything and restructure everything. So like I started off writing a lot of standalones and they're a much harder sell. Mm -hmm. So now I'm moving more towards writing series and then using the standalones now just to boost a brand new mailing list, which is exclusively um, built around historical fiction. That is interesting. So when did you write that first book? You had that out, I think, when we first met. Uh, yeah, the first historical novel I released would have been end of 2011. Then I really want to encourage people listening. So you have basically this year, so what, nine years later, you have almost started it again with your fiction, um, not your whole brand, because of course you've got a whole load of people, but you've started a new list. You've started a new algorithm thing with a new author name. So that really is, is it starting from zero or because you know what to do? You're, yeah. you're a bit ahead. So it's starting from zero, but with a very good roadmap, maybe. And I did deliberately, I didn't seed this new audience at all with any of my existing audience. So I started a new Facebook page and getting those first 10 likes was, I was sweating bricks. I really was because I wasn't, I, I was so tempted to share it on my personal profile. Hey, if some of you guys like my historical novel, but I, I didn't, I wanted to keep, I wanted to keep this pure um, just to make sure that my also bots didn't get polluted and that I, I, I fed, because especially at the start, when Amazon doesn't have a lot of data, when you, basically when you haven't sold a lot of books, when, after republishing something, I'm starting from zero then in the eyes of the algorithm too. I've got to feed Amazon high quality data and I can't be any, anything messing things up there. So I wanted Amazon to exclusively see purchases coming from hardcore historical fiction readers rather than anyone who might be a casual fan or someone who might be just supporting me or whatever else. So I really did have to start from zero in that sense, a brand new mailing list, brand new Facebook page. Um, I built walls on my website to basically cut it in two so there was no links going from either side and then republish the books under a fresh name. Like just sticking an initial in is enough to make it look like a totally different author on Amazon and then new separate author page. So I really did separate everything and really did start that totally from zero again. And I, I absolutely agree. I think it's really good. And in fact, my Amazon auto ads on my Joanna pen work really well because the, the brand is so separate. And uh, but my JF pen is all over the place because I write across so many subgenres. So even if you do, even if you do have a separate name for your fiction, it can still be complicated. But you've actually got a new book out, haven't you, around um, Amazon? Does that include some of your lessons learned? What, what can we find in there? Yeah, it's called Amazon Decoded. And I just launched it today, actually. did the first send to my mailing list. I'll split that send over three or four days. But the first tranche went out about, about an hour and a half ago, actually. So yeah, I've no idea how it's going. Maybe everyone's emailing me and complaining while we're breezily chatting away here. But uh, yeah, that's one of the things that, that, that I take a look at in it is, is the whole issue of pen names. Because there really is pros and cons here. Because I can definitely speak from firsthand experience now that it is a lot of extra work and it's an extra expense too. You're buying a new domain name, but you might have a different hosting package. You might have costs involved in republishing and getting those covers tweaked and then getting your paperback editions done. But in terms of admin as well, there is more time 
both in the setup, there's a lot more time in the setup, and then a little bit more in, in the ongoing sense as well. Just extra bits of admin you have to take care of. But I'm making the bet, and the initial results seem to be proving it as a good choice, that this will be the smart long-term play and that the benefits will weigh the, the costs. But there are costs to it, and that's why there is a big debate over this, and that's why everyone doesn't agree. So I think if you're in two genres where you do have a nat- lot of natural crossover, like there's a lot of authors who write both fantasy and science fiction, and there's a lot of readers who read both. And I would be fine with somebody using the same name and something like that. But even some authors who do that will separate the name slightly. They'll shorten their first name or something. So there is a big debate about this. Um, so I think anyone, before they take the step of doing that, just to read up on both sides of it and just get a feel for what might work better for you. So uh, any other really interesting tips in Amazon Decoded? I'm sure everyone's going to go get it, but give us a, a sneak preview. Uh, well, anything else interesting you think people would... Uh, well, there's about 76,000 words of epic tips. Just uh, one, one epic okay, tip. Okay, I'll, I'll give This is more of an interesting quirk, right? Um, I discovered something very interesting when I was researching how the whole recommendation engine on Amazon was built. And this might actually put a lot of people at ease rather than giving them a solid marketing takeaway. There's been a lot of worry about also bots on Amazon because we're just starting to understand, you know, that they're central to how the whole system works. The, the, the role they play is murky. Nobody's really sure what they do, but they know if their also bots get screwed up, they're in trouble. That's usually what people feel. Um, and they know that there's something to do with how books are recommended to customers. So I, I did a little bit of digging and I found out some really interesting stuff about this because I think there was a worry that started about, I think, November last year when that was the first time that also bots disappeared for a lot of people everywhere. And everyone just decided, oh, that means Amazon is pay to play now. You have to be spending tons of money on Amazon ads or you won't get, an organ- you won't get any organic recommendations. But I think I can put everyone's minds at ease because what I discovered was um, the underlying system, the recommendation engine, the, the thing that's basically like a literary version of Tinder, just pairing up books and readers constantly every day, that is blissfully unaffected by whether also bots get removed from your page or not. So everyone can just relax about that point. And I'll give you one example of how it actually works in practice. So if, and if thousands of people want to test this out right now by downloading my book, I'm totally fine with that. But if you were to download Let's Get Digital Now, which is actually free, if you were to download it in about two weeks' time, roughly, it's, it doesn't work like clockwork, but it's pretty regular, Amazon will actually send you an email suggesting that you buy the next book in the series. And it's not actually necessarily that because it's the next book in the series, but because the next book in the series is the number one also bought. So Amazon knows that everyone who downloads Let's Get Digital, the book they are most likely to purchase next, or the one that they have a strong response to if they're recommended it, is strangers to superfans. So Amazon will recommend that two weeks later. And the same goes for any other series, right? Assuming that you have all your metadata in place and you haven't messed any of that up. And even before that, Amazon will be recommending that book. They, they always try and close the sale in different ways. They try and reach a reader in different ways. So even when you, anytime you buy a book on Amazon, you will see a confirmation page pop up on the screen confirming your purchase. And right there on that page, because Amazon doesn't miss a trick, they recommend you another book. And almost always, it's the number one also bought for that book, which if you write a series, is almost always going to be the book two in your series. And then Amazon will actually recommend that book a couple of times on site. And then eventually, if you haven't purchased it, a couple of weeks later, they will actually email you and try and get you that way. So this whole recommendation engine is constantly working like that all the time, regardless of whether also bots happen to be on your page on Amazon today or not. So I think people can just relax about that. The, the recommendation engine, the organic recommendation engine hasn't changed. It's still working perfectly. Yeah, that is good to know. And I, I agree. I think as a, a buyer, I, I just spend so much money. <laughs> I just love it, especially in lockdown. Goodness, I've just, it's the yeah. only thing to buy. I have a whole cupboard full of banana slicers, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to talk about other sites because everyone gets a bit obsessed with Amazon. Of course, they are the biggest player and they do have all those different formats, which I think is one of the great reasons to send people to Amazon. But there are also loads of other sites and it's very important, I think, to remember that. And when I decided I was going to really reboot my fiction brand a couple of months back, April, I was like, I'm going to get back into this because unless you are focusing on sales, they they can drop off. And I got your another one of your fantastic books, which is Bookbove Ads Expert. And I bought it on uh, ebook and then I bought it in print uh, because it's that good and I really I'm big upping you here because 
I've basically used that book and BookBub ads to reboot my fiction sales on the other stores and also my nonfiction books on the stores where it just wasn't really selling. Let's just get into a, a bit on BookBub ads and why they're so good, especially for people who publish wide. Yeah, when I was writing that book, I was trying to wrap my head around is why are bookbub ads so effective? Once you get over the testing phase, and we'll talk about that in a second, but once you get them working, why are they so effective? Why are the conversion rates just so much higher? Because out of every three or four clicks I get from a bookbub ad, that'll turn into a sale for me, which is that kind of conversion rate, the best Facebook marketers in the world would give their IT for that kind of conversion rate. And I, I just didn't get it until I was, I think I was actually sitting there in front of my Gmail account and my book of email arrived. And then I realized it's because the ads are delivered by email and any marketer will tell you that nothing converts like email. Um, email is just, it feels more intimate. It feels more personal. There's less distractions. It's not, you see an ad on Facebook. There's a lot of other things, you know, competing for your attention there. Same on Amazon, but there is one ad in that email. Okay, you are competing for attention with all the other deals in the email, but that's already putting someone in the frame of mind to buy as they scroll down and see all these different deals going on in different genres. And they get to your ad and they're, they're, their buyer intent, if you like, is just at maximum at that point. And then they see your ad and it's the only ad there. And so I think people forget that a lot of the time, that this is a different ad platform because it's being delivered by email. But in terms of wide authors, like they're, they're such a godsend for wide authors because obviously you can't use Amazon ads to push your wide books. And then when you try on Facebook, it's a little bit tricky, especially for Kobo and Google Play and even Apple. I've, they're hit and miss for me. And whereas mm -hmm. like, I can get Facebook ads working really well for Amazon, no problem. But, and especially going into those smaller niches because Facebook, just because of the structural nature of Facebook, it's much better at targeting bigger, broader audiences. Whereas BookBub seems to be much better at targeting those small pockets of readers. And you get lots of small pockets of readers when you're a wide author, whether it's like Kobo readers in Australia or Apple readers in the UK. It's all small pockets. It's all these little streams that we're trying to get a, to add up to a, a, a mighty river. And it's really effective at that because you can target a really small audience on BookBub. And um, on Facebook, that ad wouldn't even run because the audience is too small. But on BookBub, you can do it and you can really make it work. Mm. Yes, and I guess what it, we should make it clear, we are talking about the pay-per-click ads. We're not talking about featured deals, which are great, get a featured deal for sure. But the great thing about the pay-per-click ad is that you can be very targeted, as you say. And sometimes the issue with a featured deal, especially with fiction, is that your also bots do get messed up on things because people might take a chance. Whereas with the pay-per-click ads, you can just really hyper-target which authors you're doing. Any more sort of tips on that sort of paper click. Oh, let's talk about the testing because this is, I think, the thing that changed it for me once I understood how that works. Yeah, so the, it's really essential that you, that you spend a good deal of time testing. I think something like a quarter or even a third of that book is devoted to the testing process because with BookBub ads, I don't know if you found this personally, but all the, the, the difficulties at the start, the learning curve is very steep at the start and then it levels out. Once, you've, once you get through the testing phase, some people get through it kind of quickly. Some people get stuck there for a little while and get quite frustrated. And I get a few emails from people desperately you know, looking for assistance. But what you need to do is, firstly, you're starting fresh on BookBub. If you have targets that work for you on Facebook or Amazon, yeah, so you can test them, but don't assume, don't just start a campaign, put together all your comp authors from Facebook or whatever, and then just turn up the budget. You will lose your money straight away. You need to test each author individually to see if they work for you on BookBub. And you do need to double check that before spending any real money. And um, also the image is really important. And I'm, I think over the last couple of years, the standard of what image readers res respond to has increased a little bit. And you just need to make it as really as pro as possible. I think I have a couple of tutorials now on my YouTube channel showing you how to do that for BookBub. And there's a really simple method you can use just basically taking the cover art. And you don't need to be a graphic designer or have any skill to do this. Just taking the cover art of your book, using that as a kind of background, putting your book cover in there, and then putting your offer in there. And I think this is one place where people slip up. You really need to have some kind of strong offer in your ad for BookBub to work. It's not like Facebook where you can sometimes get away with a higher price book or even Amazon ads can be quite tolerant of higher prices. But BookBub, you really need to have a deal because it is a deals newsletter. You're competing against the biggest authors in the world will be in that email, some of them. 
and the books will be all be free, 99 cent or 199. So if you're going to try and advertise a 499 book, it's very difficult. I can sometimes make it work. I think if someone's experienced and skilled with BookWeb ads, they can sometimes make that work. But starting off at that point is really difficult. So I would say do your testing, do it on a 99 cent book because that will give you the best response mm. because or best kind of feedback because sometimes a freebie, anyone will jump on a freebie because it doesn't cost anything. And you're not really getting a good test if that, if that target is going to work for you. So do a 99 cent book, spend a lot of time on the image, test a few different images, test a few different authors, and eventually you'll start nailing both of those down. And then once you actually have a list of authors that you get a good response with and a, a list of, and then a few different images that you can get a good response with, you can really turn up that budget. And, and the, the consistency of results that you get, once you get beyond that testing point is amazing. Mm. And so just to be clear, it's essentially you do a thousand impressions on, you say, the hardest market, Amazon US, yeah. for a 99 cent book. So I might say Dan Brown won a 99 cent book for a thousand impressions and see what the click through rate is. And I think it's one over one percent, right? Yeah, I think like it 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 it, it depends. Like I, it, it really depends what what kind of what price clicks work for you personally in your business. If you're trying to shift a standalone book, it's very different than if you're trying to push the, a book one in a series where you've got eight more books in the series that readers could buy. You're going to be able to tolerate a higher click cost if you have a long series. So for me personally, I always try and get clicks below fifty cent. So then between one and a half and two percent on the ad usually delivers that. But you'll find that threshold yourself as you're testing and as you're seeing the cost of the clicks come in. But one thing I should stress is, like, because you used the example of Dan Brown there, um, I personally find it very hard to get big authors to work. Sometimes you can get really lucky and one of those bigger authors can really work for you. For me, um, I prefer targeting those bigger authors on Facebook. I find that works a lot better. When it comes to BookBub, I think your mid to large size indies or the smaller trad authors usually end up being better targets. I guess I just use him because he's an obvious, but I'll get uh, I'll, uh, my second question that I had actually was, so I have found uh, some authors, I'll pick James Rollins, who is well known in some countries and not others. So James Rollins like works for me, say on um, Amazon Canada and Kobo Canada, but not on Apple, for example, or I found some authors work particularly well on Apple UK but not elsewhere. So what I started out with was, okay, these are my sort of seven or eight authors who work really well for my Arcane series. But then what I found is sometimes they differ by platform and also by country. So what, and obviously it's very expensive then to test on every platform in every country. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on this testing by territory, by platform? Yeah, what I usually suggest is starting out at Amazon US, even if you do want to focus more on wide markets, because it is the toughest market for many reasons. It has the most competition for starters, right? And then secondly, it's the most deal saturated audience. So it has the most kind of bookbub like sites and different ways that people can get deals and discounts. So the market is absolutely swamped with 99 cent books and freebies. So if you can get an ad to work in Amazon US, then almost always you can roll it out to all the other Amazons, all the other stores internationally, and you can be really confident that it's going to work well. So that's why it's a perfect testing ground. But that said, you might find there's an author like you did with James Rollins or somebody like that, which didn't quite work for you in Amazon US. And this is especially true of bigger authors, by the way. Mm-hmm. So if you do have a big author, let's say you are definitely squarely aiming at Dan Brand's audience and the ad is not working for you on Amazon US, you can try it in, in Kobo, Australia, or one of those smaller markets because... Um, you will generally tend to see a higher click-through rate on your ads in smaller markets and smaller retailers because partly because books are just more expensive in places like Australia or books tend to be more expensive on Apple or Kobo than they will be on Amazon. And so when you combine all those things together, you also get a, a they're more deal-starved or the, the readers are more hungry for deals. They're, they don't get as many opportunities to buy a 99-cent book or, or download a freebie. So you do tend to get a higher response. So if you feel very strongly, there is a big author who is definitely a strong comp author for you, and it's not working on Amazon US. That's one of the joys of being a wide author. You can roll that ad out in the UK or Canada or Australia, and you will, you will probably get, you should get a lot better results. And sometimes the results will be good enough to really make that a workable target for you. Mm, And that's what's really encouraged me. I've really just found this 
to be working like I finally got Google Play moving which is just brilliant I just haven't been able to get things moving at Google Play but it's the kind of um, store where if you can get things moving then it, it's that snowball effect I think what well, maybe all of these places are if you can get things going I also have found like you mentioned it has to be a deal what I have found is that using full price non-fiction particularly often our non full price non-fiction still looks like a deal to yeah, people yeah. in many territories so I've just used a sort of read now on a non-fiction book and getting five seven percent click through and that's great yeah just incredible because these stores are starved and uh, most authors are so fixated on amazon us uk (laughs) that the rest of this place is super cheap so i'm very excited by this i just feel very happy about finding your book not that you were hiding it but i finally (laughs) put it into action and i feel like it's a really big deal are there any other things that you feel are working for wide authors in particular Here's one that might be a little counterintuitive. And I actually talk about this a little bit in Amazon Decoded, that we, we don't need as wide authors, because I'm wide with everything now, although I'll be doing some KU pen name stuff in a bit. But I, I, I don't want to cede the entire Amazon market to all these KU people. I'm, I'm more than happy to still compete for some of those readers. And what I found is, and I think this will actually fit the wide mindset well, because we don't really care where the reader comes from, as long as they're buying, it doesn't matter what country they're in or whatever. I tend to find that, especially when it comes to ads, that there's an opportunity in Amazon Canada and Amazon Australia. Now, they're smaller markets, but most uh, KU people tend to ignore them, I find, because a lot of KU people tend to focus on countdown deals, especially over free deals. And countdown deals are only available in the US and the UK. So that's where all their ads are pushing, all their marketing focus and resources and everything is always on pushing the US and the UK. And I'm getting a great response from just a little bit of a push in Australia and Canada. Mm. Oh, I'm definitely doing that too. I just was more encouraged by these other markets where I just had never really even got some sales. So now I'm like, yay, I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it, recommend that. it's it's wonderful when you roll out like a, a Kobo Australia campaign or something and, and you just see the results come in. And sometimes you're getting these really wonderful click-through rates of seven, eight, nine percent. And just for anyone who doesn't know book ads, that means it's driving down the cost of your clicks to 10 cents or something. So mm. those are really profitable ads to run. Mm. And also just from a sort of personal perspective, Facebook is really complicated and the setup is complicated. There's a gazillion fields that you have to think about yeah. when you set up a Facebook ad. And um, Amazon ads obviously really do highly benefit people in KU for eBooks. And also they're not available for the wide platform. So for me, BookBub ads just fill this great gap that is missing for also the other thing with Facebook ads is you have to track comments and I've just had too many instances lately where there have been comments that have really ruined my day so Mm -hmm. my criteria for advertising now is there is no way to leave a comment (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I I, I hear you on that I have one historical novel which which how shall I phrase this diplomatically touches on the occasional thorny relationship between Ireland and and England and (laughs) When I released that in 2016, I never once saw a negative comment from everyone. But obviously the political climate has changed a little bit and people are probably just crankier in general right now because they're stuck at home. And I've noticed, I noticed when I did a campaign in, in June that I was attracting all sorts of comments that it would make you go for a lie down, quite frankly. Yeah, so that it's good to change. I think that's the message of this discussion today is things change, we change, and we have to adapt to whatever the new situation is. And hopefully you and I are going to be around for the next decade. Is there anything that you're excited about or that you see coming that people should should focus on? This is less of an exciting thing and more, I think there's a couple of twin, there's a couple of twin, there's a couple of dangers <laughs> facing publishing right now. Obviously, we're all dealing with the coronavirus issue. And while that would seem to affect the traditional end of the business more, anyone that's dealing in print and and bookstores and all that, I think some kind of economic downturn is pretty much unavoidable. And while books are, ebooks especially, are more or less, not more or less, but a little bit recession proof, I think everyone having less money or being more distracted or whatever is never good on any level. But then there are dangers which are more specific to the digital world and ebooks and self-publishers in particular. Like we've just seen Uh, in the US, some move towards antitrust actions against um, Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Google as well. And that's, those are three of the four big markets for, or four of the five, three of the five big markets for indie authors. (laughs) And then Facebook is the main 
one of the main ways that we use to reach readers as well. And obviously Amazon is the majority of income from for most indie authors. So yeah, I think looking at all that, I think this to me, and I actually have made a few changes in my business this year, just thinking about all this, that I'm, re- I'm focusing more on building up my own platforms, building up traffic to my website, building up my mailing list and refocusing my business more about that. And I don't want to sell direct or anything like that. But if the worst was to happen tomorrow and someone pulled the plug on Amazon or Facebook or whatever, I'd be in a better position to set that up overnight because I've got more people on my list now. I've got more people coming to my website. I'm doing a bit of training with my list as well, sending to my website rather than direct to retailers. Just Mm -hmm. doing it every so often, not doing it all the time, but just every so often, get all your links here. And I might lose a couple of sales by not linking direct, but I'm just trying to bring that in as a thing that I'm going to send you to my website first. And so that if I ever do need to switch to selling direct or whatever happens, I'm a bit more prepared. Mm, no, that it's a great recommendation. I've been selling direct for a long time and I've been focusing on it more this year as well. As you say, it, it means that. And also what's lovely is people have started to choose to buy direct from me in order that I get more money, which is great because you also get the data and you get email, you get country, you get all kinds of things. So I think you're right. I think this is going to be the way forward. So exciting times ahead. Where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Here's something that I should have done 10 years ago. I actually bought a vanity URL, uh, marketingwithastory.com. And that redirects now to davidgochran.com, which is a bit harder to say on a podcast when nobody knows how to spell it. So you can go to marketingwithastory.com and then you'll get redirected to my website. You'll find everything there. You'll find my free guide to self-publishing. You can sign up to the free course. I also have a, a mailing list, which I recommend signing up to. It's a weekly marketing newsletter. I think you get another freebie for signing up to that. So you can check all that out. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Dave. That was great. Thank you very much. So I hope you found the interview with David useful and definitely go check out his books and courses. They are excellent. As I mentioned, I found his BookBub ads book specifically very useful for my own advertising. So whatever you're trying to learn, however you are trying to progress your author career, as David said, break it down step by step. Learn to prioritise and don't be in such a rush. Also, don't be afraid of making mistakes. You heard there of mistakes we've both made. You will change things over time. And the beauty of indie is that you are in control and you get to change over your career while still in control of your IP, your intellectual property. So uh, yeah, I think that was a a great interview. Dave and I get on very well. So hopefully we'll be having a sharing a gin or a beer again at some point at some live conference. Uh, well, some of you are there too. <laughs> right. So next week, I'm talking to KM Wyland about outlining your novel. Katie has a great book called Outlining Your Novel, and we'll be talking about that. We are back on the writing craft and Katie has some great tips. We also have an interesting chat about writer's block, among other things. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.